In order to fit 15 billion transistors on a chip the size of your fingernail, each one of them needs to be smaller than the size of a virus. The complexities involved in mass manufacturing virus-sized transistors, and it turns out that it's the hardest manufacturing problems that humanity has ever tried to tackle. Welcome back to the Zero Pressure podcast series, a relaxed conversation with those on the cutting edge of science and technology. Hosted by me, Helen Sharman, and presented by Imperial College London and Saab. The Zero Pressure podcast series is looking at how science and technology positively can contribute to solving complex, interrelated global challenges of today and tomorrow. This time, we're talking about microchips and the world of microelectronics. Microchips are the bedrock of modern technology and are vital in everything from fighter jets to mobile phones. The United States and more recently Taiwan have been dominant leaders in the global markets of new chip technology. But massive investment in China may change all this. Making chips, especially the more advanced types, is a complex business. It requires high-tech equipment and high levels of expertise. So if one of these links in the chain is missing, the chips and the products that need them may come to nothing. How is the development and manufacture of microelectronics changing geopolitics? And to what extent are international tensions playing a part in new chip technology? My guest today is Dr. Chris Miller. Chris is an Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His research examines key shifts in technology, international politics and economics. Chris is a prolific writer. His published works include books on Russian economic policy and international relations. And his most recent book, Chip War, explores the history of microchip technology and the hold this tiny tech has on the whole planet. Chris, welcome to Zero Pressure. Thank you for having me. Now, you've published three books, I think, about Russian politics and history. So what got you into studying Russia? What was the motivation behind that? Well, I did my PhD in Russian and Soviet history, and I was primarily interested just by understanding the history of how Russia developed. Obviously, it's got a history very different from that of countries that I was more familiar with, and it seemed like a interesting uh, case study for making sense of uh, what it is that uh, drives politics and and economics in other contexts. And then why the flip to chips or perhaps is it technology more generally? Well, I started five years ago, actually more than that now, um, around 2015. So uh, eight years ago now, planning to create a book on the evolution of defense technology during the Cold War. And the question I wanted to answer is why was it that the Soviet Union could produce all of the key defense technologies of the early Cold War, atomic weapons, long-range delivery systems. But by the end of the Cold War, it had fallen far, far behind. And I at first thought that the answer to that question would be found in the evolution of specific platforms, like specific planes or specific missiles. But it quickly became clear as I dug into the evolution of military systems that actually what had really changed was not any given platform, but rather the computing, the sensing, the communications inside of them. Uh, And that led me to zero in on semiconductors as really a core component that undergirds all of the computing, all the communications, all of the sensors that in turn have transformed the way that militaries fight. And and semiconductors were a technology that the West was very good at producing and the Russians were horrible at producing. And uh, if you want to understand why it is that Russians couldn't develop 
competitive computers despite trying for decades, pouring vast sums of money into it? Uh, the answer is in large part because they couldn't acquire the technology needed to produce semiconductors. Have you had to learn much about the science and tech behind it? I mean, for an historian to write a book about chips and in such depth as well. I have no background in in electrical engineering or material science. I've had to learn um, a lot in the process. But one of the fun parts of the research for me was to interview hundreds of people who work in the industry across all parts of the supply chain, from the software tools that design chips to the machines that produce them to the actual manufacturing themselves. And what I learned when I did that is that, in fact, semiconductor manufacturing is the most complex and precise manufacturing that humans have ever undertaken. And I was vaguely aware of the fact that there were there was a computer chip inside of my computer and one inside of my phone when I started. But I was uh, frankly uh, taken aback when I learned that if you go to the Apple store and buy a new iPhone, just the primary chip of dozens that are uh, dozens of semiconductors that are in your phone, the primary chip has 15 billion transistors etched into it. And in order to fit 15 billion transistors on a chip the size of your fingernail, each one of them needs to be smaller than the size of a virus. And I'd never had any conception of just the complexities involved in mass manufacturing virus-sized transistors. And it turns out that it's the hardest manufacturing problems that humanity has ever tried to tackle. When you've described microchip technology as the world's most critical resource, I mean, why is it so vital to us? Well, today, no one listening to this podcast can live their life without relying on hundreds and really probably thousands of semiconductors. If you wake up in the morning and turn off your alarm clock, you have a semiconductor inside of there. Open your refrigerator, there are chips inside of there. If you've got a new car, it'll have a thousand or so chips inside of it. So even before you've turned on your phone or opened your computer, you've interacted with many hundreds of semiconductors. And the computing we rely on is is even more dependent on, on chips. And it's not just the chips in your phone or in your PC, but it's also the semiconductors in the telecoms networks that transfer your data or the chips in the data centers that process your data. Simply, there's not a single segment of the economy that can function as it does today without lots and lots of chips. And that's something we've learned over the past several years as the world economy has been roiled by a shortage of semiconductors. And Industries that previously didn't think of themselves as major users of chips, like the auto industry, faced several hundred billion dollars of losses globally over the past couple of years because they couldn't source the chips that they need. So we've all come to realize, I think, slowly, belatedly, the extent to which the modern world is structured on a foundation of silicon chips that we never see. Most of us have never purchased because they're embedded deep inside the devices we use, but which modern life can't function without. So everyday items, cars, um, fridges, uh, gaming, um, but also, of course, importantly, uh, defense and security. Yeah. So the the first ships were actually invented for use in uh, space and defense systems. The, The first major order for semiconductors was in the Apollo spacecraft's guidance computer. Uh, which sent the first astronauts to the moon. Uh, The second major order for semiconductors was in the guidance computer for the Minuteman II intercontinental ballistic missile. And since those early days in the 1960s, there's been a really deep interrelationship between the defense industrial base and advances in semiconductor technology. And today, militaries are relatively small buyers of chips, 
uh, just a couple percentage points of all the chips produced each year end up in defense or aerospace uses. But uh, militaries have unique demands for certain types of chips that uh, make them still an important player in R&D. So for example, uh, many sorts of space and military uses require chips that are radiation hardened, so they can be used in outer space. There's lots of unique sensors and communications that militaries need. And as a result, uh, they procure uh, unique types of chips that aren't used in civilian applications. And because of that, when it comes to R&D that goes into the chip industry, especially long-run R&D, more than five years out, uh, it's, it's governments and militaries that are still major players in terms of shaping uh, the future trajectory of, of where the chip industry is headed. And we're often told that this miniaturization of chips that we allows us to put like so many billions of transistors on, on one tiny chip. What has enabled us to do this? And we often hear about Moore's law. Um, it, it's not really a sort of a law that tells us um, it's like a law of physics, is it? But it's more a, a law that just describes the fact that we have been able to put so many more transistors on the same size of, of chip. Um, what, what's what's enabled all that to happen? Well, the the there were two key factors. One was that there was a need to miniaturize because miniaturization offered huge benefits, both reduced power consumption and uh, more computing power in a given area area of silicon. And that need to miniaturize meant that there have been billions and billions of dollars focused on the question of how to actually do it. And so you you can't ignore the market demand as being an absolutely critical enabler of the engineering that then made it possible. Uh, but w- once you had the demand in place, the question was, well, how do you actually mass manufacture at the at the micron level and then eventually the nanometer level, which is where we are today? That's billionths of a meter, which are used to measure the transistors inside of your smartphone. Yeah, so we're talking about a thousandth of a millimeter here, aren't we? This is small. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's, it's so small. It's, it's really hard to comprehend or visualize just how small we're talking about because it's it's far far beyond what the human eye can can see and and because the manufacturing takes place at such uh, minute measurements it's required a whole suite of new machine tools needed to produce um, tools that can deposit thin films of materials with just a couple of atoms thickness uh, tools that can etch uh, holes in materials again with just a couple of atoms uh, wide and, and tools that can uh, measure the fabrication of these transistors and ascertain whether they've been produced accurately or inaccurately when any sort of inaccuracy is measured uh, in just a, a couple of nanometers or two error. So we're talking now about lithography, aren't we, where um, perhaps a material might be laid down and then another material on top of that. And then um, certain parts of it are what we might call burned in. They're, they're hardened. And we do that by perhaps shining a certain type wavelength of light on that material. And then we can wash away the rest of the material. So we end up with these lines that we, we think of as, 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 as chips. That's right. Yeah, and the, and the basic concept is is sort of like old uh, black and white photography. You'd you'd flash light on the film, and and where light was flashed, chemicals would react in a certain way, and you'd get a piece of film developed. The, the same types, more or less, of chemicals are deployed on um, silicon, and you flash light in a certain pattern, and that uh, begins to pattern the transistors that you want to um, develop. Now, the the, the challenge is that. Uh, today, because transistors are so small, visible light is far too broad a brush with which to paint the patterns that we want to paint. So visible light has a wavelength of several hundred nanometers, 
And uh, today, transistors are measured in the um, you know, single nanometers or dozens of nanometers. Uh, and so for the past several years, we've, for the most advanced ships, used what's called extreme ultraviolet light with a wavelength of 13.5 nanometers, uh, which is uh, small enough to pattern the transistors uh, that are required. And, and producing this light is, uh, has been one of the greatest engineering challenges that humans have ever confronted, requiring the flattest mirrors ever made, uh, one of the most powerful lasers ever deployed in a commercial device, uh, and an explosion happening uh, constantly inside these machines to produce the, the, the plasma that emits the light uh, with a temperature of uh, many times hotter than the surface of the sun. So I understand it's lead, isn't it? It's sort of like a molten blob, a tiny blob of lead that falls in a vacuum and then a laser zaps it, they say, creates this explosion. And then we see the resulting light, this ultraviolet light. Is, is that how it works? That's, it's, it's a ball of tin, actually. So the, the tin falls through a vacuum. Uh, and there are, are many pieces of tin falling very rapidly through a vacuum. And then it's struck twice by a laser. A, a first pulse is called a pre-pulse uh, that begins to heat it up. And then the second pulse is a stronger blast uh, that explodes it into this plasma. Uh, and then the plasma uh, is what begins to emit the light, which is then collected by uh, these mirrors, and then the mirrors direct it towards towards the wafer. And, and every part of this process is is really mind-bogglingly complex. So the mirrors alone, uh, they have uh, 40 layers of materials, each a couple of nanometers thick, that are necessary to actually create the reflectivity that's possible to uh, reflect uh, this type of light. Because this, this type of light is actually quite close to the X-ray spectrum. And so most materials uh, don't reflect it. They absorb it like X-rays. So what sort of wavelengths are we talking about? A, a, a few tens of nanometers, something like that? It's a, a 13.5, yes. Wow. So so 13 nanometers, so almost X-ray, but it's extreme ultraviolet light. Um, and these machines then can, can emit this. And then with, like you say, with these different type mirrors, they focus um, and go through, presumably the light has to go through a type of a grid, which is then with optics, made really teeny so that he can, we can actually um, get this grid um, zapped onto the chip um, in, in the machine. That, that's exactly right. Yep. Wow. So are we getting to a stage where actually we're not going to be able to get an awful lot smaller than this? I mean, presumably we could use x-rays at some point, but, you know, we won't get into the, to almost, you know, a, a few atoms size. We can't get much smaller than that, can we? Perhaps we can. Well, you know, there's a lot of tricks that that can be used. So, so first off, the the extreme ultraviolet lithography machine in use now today uses what's called single patterning, uh, and what that means is you you pattern once to get the pattern that you're looking for. But with previous generations of lithography that have a a, a broader a, a longer wavelength. Uh, we've, we were able in the past to use multiple patterning. So you could do multiple rounds of patterning, up to four rounds of patterning, to get uh, more precise patterns with a, a given wavelength of light. So we haven't even begun to start the process of multiple patterning with EUV, and I think we should expect that it will certainly be possible to produce uh, much more precise patterns if we do good on that route. Now, it gets more expensive as well, and so there's a, a really important cost question involved, but uh, there's no theoretical reason why we shouldn't expect to be able to do quad patterning at least. And then there's a the question of, will we get more advanced lithography machines? And we will. The company that makes EUV machines uh, is preparing a, a new iteration called High Numerical Aperture EUV, which is, um, and, and basically the, the higher the numerical aperture, the more precise you can 
uh, you can you can pattern if you think back to your, your your basic optics. And so in 2026 or so, there will be a new generation machine with a higher numerical aperture and therefore more precise. Then there's research underway uh, into a uh, what they call hypernumerical aperture machine down the road, perhaps around the end of the decade, which could have an even higher uh, NA and therefore more precise pattern. So there's actually a long way to go in terms of our ability to precision manufacture. The question is going to be whether it's commercially viable to do so. So Moore's law that states some um, that there's a doubling in the number of transistors on a chip about every couple of years. We we can think that that probably for the next decade or so will continue to be the case. Do you reckon? You know, you can find many people today who will say Moore's law is almost dead. But you can also find many people in the 1980s, very smart people who were saying Moore's law is almost dead. You can find Gordon Moore in 2003 saying he couldn't imagine how Moore's law could continue. And here we are 20 years later. Now, the, the, the skeptics of Moore's law will say correctly that, in fact, there were two facets to Moore's law when Gordon Moore set it out in 1965. The first was that the amount of computing power per chip would double every year or two. And that's still happening. The second is that the cost, the average cost per transistor would decline. And that was true from 1965 all the way until around 2015. But in 2015, uh, around that year, we transitioned from uh, simple planar transistors to a type of 3D transistor called a FinFET, which are harder to manufacture. And since the transition to FinFETs, the average cost per transistor has not been declining. So measured in cost terms, Moore's law does appear to be dead. Measured in performance terms, it's not dead. And that hasn't been a problem because we collectively have been willing to pay for more computing power. Our demand for computing is so great. But at some point in the future, that may break down. Although with all the developments in AI, I think we're a long way away from the point at which people will stop being willing to pay for advances in computing. I'll be back with Chris shortly. I've also been talking with Professor Santosh Kurinek, Professor of Electrical and Microelectronic Engineering at Rochester Institute of Technology, where her current research activities include photovoltaics, non-volatile memory, and advanced integrated circuit materials and processes. What sort of skills are in short supply for the workforce that we're going to need to do all this? I think right now, since I work in the lab here, we have a clean room facility where we actually teach students how to make chips. So when I take students inside and they see the equipment and they learn how to use the equipment, and that is where they get interested. So if they don't see the equipment, if they don't see what's inside the chip, for them, everything is cloud computing. Everything is on mobile phone. Everything is so they don't really feel how it is made. I think more exposure to the technology which you are doing, I think it's very good. So we want to tell kids that open the cell phone, open a computer and see the chips and see inside how it's made, how it's built, and then they will be interested. Another thing I tell them that no matter what energy you can use, either nuclear or solar or any energy system you use, you need matter. You always need matter. So how do you build the these things which, which give you energy, which give you computational power, which give you communications, you need matter. Who makes those matter? Where do we mine the materials? How do I make silicon from sand? 
we we want to show them those plants so i take my students to field trips i show them look at this how we make silicon sand how do you make crystal of silicon how do we cut this silicon and then put devices on top of it somehow it is hidden from young people so we have to show them more of that and i just would want to tell uh, young people that they should show curiosity over this technology so don't take it for granted you know <laughs> look at uh, where we came from and where we heading to and it seems that there are some innovations which are going to happen in the future and at the same time we have to be energy conscious so that means that if we are using this technology to the extent that it's more for pleasure and less for needs we are consuming more energy thank you to santosh karinek and now let's go back to chris miller the cost of making chips um I can see that these advanced chips, um, the actual cost of the machines to make them is, is huge. I mean, how much, how much does one of these extreme ultraviolet lithography machines actually cost to buy? If I, if I wanted to, to buy one off the shelf and, and have it imported to my fabrication plant, how much would I have to pay? It'd be around $150 million just for that tool. But that tool alone is is not enough. You need the deposition tool, you need the metrology tool, you need the etching tool. So for a, a single assembly line, you're, you're talking in the billions of dollars. And can anybody buy these or are they restricted? I'm thinking about anybody around the world. Well, anyone outside of China, Russia, I suspect Iran and North Korea would probably also have uh, difficulties acquiring them. But beyond that, anyone can buy them. Now, the question is, who can actually operate them? And the reality is that there's just a couple of firms with the requisite levels of know-how that can operate them. And so ASML, which is the only producer of these tools, just has a small number of customers buying them. In the the market for logic chips, there's uh, right now three customers, TSMC, Samsung, and Intel. And then in, on the memory side, there's a couple of other customers, but we're talking about uh, less than 10 customers for these machines today. And I think, you know, seven, 10 years down the road, there will still be a very small number of customers for these tools. So why is it so important that um, to some of the countries in the world that Russia and China, for instance, do not have access to this kind of fabrication tools? Well, if you look historically, what you find is that um, every country that has uh, acquired access to advanced computing capabilities has deployed them to defense and intelligence uses. Um, and if you think back to the origins computing, whether it's um, the the British codebreakers at Bletchley Park during World War II cracking Nazi codes or U.S. efforts to track Soviet submarines during the Cold War by putting uh, microphones underwater across the world and aggregating the data through advanced supercomputers. Um, there are many examples you can cite, but there's there's basically been an inevitable law of politics that if you have advanced computing, you will deploy it for defense and intelligence uses. Uh, and so I think that that assumption is is pretty deeply ingrained in the uh, security and defense establishments in um, in the U.S., for example, in, in the Netherlands and in Japan and other countries that have been tightening up their export control rules. And as uh, they've seen China advance technologically uh, and pour money into its ship industry, they've been concerned about what the ramifications of uh, advances in computing technologies would uh, bring for China's military. And I think especially today as Defense ministries around the world believe that they're on the cusp of a, a big shift 
in defense technology towards more application of artificial intelligence, more application of autonomous systems, the control over the types of semiconductors that can uh, develop and train these systems has become not just a question of ChatGPT, but also a question of the application of AI to more sensitive uses. National security makes me think about Taiwan and the world relies on Taiwan, doesn't it, for so much of the manufacture of uh, of chips? I mean, isn't it true that is it an, about ninety percent of all chips are made in Taiwan, um, and fifty or sixty percent of all the advanced chips are made in Taiwan? Is that right? So, if you look at the most advanced chips, yes, it's ninety percent that are made in Taiwan across all types of semiconductors, processor chips, memory chips, um, uh, radio frequency chips, uh, around 20% are made in, in Taiwan. But among, among the processor chip segment, Taiwan is absolutely irreplaceable. And, and the most advanced chips aren't chips that only go in research labs or in, uh, in some sort of scientific research. These are the chips in your smartphone, in your PC, in telecoms infrastructure, in data centers. And it means that the entire tech sector would struggle to operate uh, without chips from Taiwan. It'd be impossible, for example, to build a smartphone almost anywhere in the world. So how come Taiwan has managed to acquire um, so much of this um, manufacturing um, capability? Well, it's largely due to the success of the biggest company in Taiwan, TSMC, the Taiwanese, uh, the, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Um, which has been uh, the world's uh, biggest chip maker for uh, some time and is also the world's most advanced producer of processor chips. And um, they've been very successful at keeping their technology advancing at the cutting edge that Moore's Law requires, uh, but also at uh, providing services to their customers that are um, very well tuned to what their customers are looking for. And and TSMC doesn't design any chips. They only manufacture. So customers like Apple or like NVIDIA will go to TSMC with a design and say, can you manufacture this? And TSMC has made itself the, the, the first choice for manufacturing chips. And so in the market for contract manufacturing of semiconductors, TSMC has around half the market, and it has for a, a very long time, um, because it not only has the most advanced technology, it also has the most, the most efficient processes and therefore the lowest prices. But doesn't Taiwan export all of these, or not Taiwan exports at least some of its um, advanced chips to China at the moment? Is it easy to to understand how that how it's designed just by getting hold of a chip itself? If, if you have a chip, you can understand um, a lot about how it was designed, but that doesn't necessarily how, tell you how to make it. So just as if you go to the the bakery and buy a cake, you know you can figure out whether it's chocolate or vanilla. Uh, but that doesn't give you the recipe. Uh, and there are a lot more process steps involved in making a chip than there are in baking a cake. And the ingredients involved are much more specialized. And uh, as a result, uh, China's been the biggest buyer of semiconductors uh, in the world for more than a decade now. Um, but actually, over the last decade, in many segments of the chip industry, China's really struggled to make much progress. So for example, the most advanced maker of processor chips in China, a firm called SMIC, has basically made zero progress in closing the gap with TSMC, the Taiwanese firm, over the last decade, despite the fact that TSMC uh, has, as its biggest customer, demand in China, uh, sends most of its chips uh, to China for assembly. But China is putting huge investment, um, money and re other resources in people in particular into these, these chips. It must be into, into chip manufacturing. What's the problem? Why can't China produce the same kind of advanced chips that 
Taiwan can? Well, the answer is that it's, it's really hard. <laughs> uh, uh, making advanced semiconductors is, is very difficult. So, you know, I think that I think asking why China can't catch up is actually the wrong question to ask because everyone else has been falling behind. It used to be the case that advanced chips could be made in multiple countries. Um, but over the past decade, Europe has fallen behind. Japan has fallen behind. The U.S. has fallen behind when it comes to making advanced processors. Korea is struggling to keep up. So everyone's fallen behind TSMC. So China's actually an outlier. Uh, China's in, in the norm. No one is, is, is succeeding in uh, keeping pace with uh, TSMC. And, and that's not unique to TSMC, which is in the manufacturing segment. Across the supply chain, the trend over the last two decades has been towards concentration with one leading firm in the lead. So in lithography, for example, we've discussed ASML, the Dutch firm that has 100% market share. Well, no one's been catching up with them. Everyone's been falling behind. The US, Japan used to have competitive lithography firms and now no longer do. So there's been no catch up in lithography. There's been no catch up in, uh, in fabrication. The trend has been falling behind. And so China actually is less of an outlier than it might seem. They're just in the, in the norm of countries that can't keep up with the leading producer in each segment. So not only have we got a huge bottleneck, really, I suppose, in this one lithography manufacturer from the Netherlands, but also we're relying hugely on this company in Taiwan to produce so much of the world's chips. And what's going to happen if something happens? I mean, presumably China would like to get hold of this technology. And what happens if China decides to in invade Taiwan? We've certainly heard rumblings of that. What do you, what do you think would happen if if that were the case? Well, if if that were to happen, we'd face the greatest disruption to global manufacturing since the Great Depression. It would be impossible to build a smartphone almost anywhere in the world for at least a year afterwards. Uh, PC production would fall by half. Data center build out, telecom network build out would grind to a halt. But it's not just that. It's actually in the lower tech parts of the manufacturing. Uh, base that we'd see even more disruption. So cars, the typical car, as we mentioned, has a thousand ships inside. Let's ballpark 10 or 20% of those come from Taiwan. In the absence of the ability to buy those from Taiwan, there's no one else who can supply them. And so we would face a race when it came to cars and dishwashers and microwaves to redesign products that they had fewer features and were dumbed down. Uh, and that would be the primary challenge of global manufacturing was to make dumber devices uh, for the next couple of years while we waited for chip demand to build up elsewhere in the world. And it'd be very hard to build up chip demand because it's very expensive to do so. The tools, as we discussed, are very specialized. And one of the most striking data points during the chip shortage of the last uh, several years was that several of the companies that make the tools that make chips, like ASML, the Netherlands, or Applied Materials in the United States, publicly reported that they were facing delays in making chip-making tools because they couldn't get enough chips. In other words, if there were an attack on Taiwan that disrupted Taiwan's chip-making capacity, we'd even struggle to make the tools that make chips because they also rely on chips from so, Taiwan. How ironic. <laughs> we need chips to make chips. That's great, isn't it? Um, TSMC is, um, I understand, is building fabrication plants in America and, and elsewhere. So perhaps you, you said we're starting to, um, to have a different place, different geographic place in the world to, to make these advanced chips. but. Um, 
perhaps before that happens, will will this shield um, continue to be a shield? Do you think for Taiwan? Um, so it it really means that um, that we can rely on the fact that um, America so doesn't want uh, China to invade Taiwan that um, that 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 will be the case. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people, including Taiwan's leaders, who believe in the Silicon Shield. I, I'm actually a skeptic. I think in the most likely scenarios, uh, the the Silicon Shield ends up not deterring China, but deterring the United States from coming to Taiwan's aid. And here's what I mean. I think if, if we think of the most likely scenario as being D-Day version 2.0, we're getting it wrong because China's natural strategy is to try to intervene in a way that doesn't trigger a U.S. response. If, if the U.S. gets involved, it's a disastrous war for everyone, regardless of who wins. But if China can begin a coercive campaign below the threshold, try to keep the U.S. out for long enough, and then deliver a fait accompli in which the U.S. decides, well, it's too late, China's already won, that provides a potential pathway, far from guaranteed, but a potential pathway for China to succeed at a cost that would not be disastrous. And so I think we should think a lot harder about these below the threshold scenarios. And so I worry, for example, about a blockade. What happens if China imposes a blockade? It could do so probably without firing a shot at first and then turn to the US and say, all right, are you willing to break the blockade? It would be like the Cuban Missile Crisis, except this time we're in the Soviet position and we're the ones who would have the very unappetizing choice of sending our Navy to escort commercial ships into Taipei Harbor and risking the Chinese blocking them. and. Uh, the decision to escalate being left to the U.S. president. Time wouldn't be on our side. Taiwan has around two weeks of liquefied natural gas supply on the island. It needs regular imports of food and uh, and all uh, everything else that Taiwan imports. So we'd have a, a clock that was ticking. And the U.S. president would face a very difficult decision. You could do nothing, let the Chinese blockade work, and thereby face the collapse of U.S. credibility across Asia and the world. Or you could do something which, in addition to the military escalation risks, which are real and frightening, there's also the fact that any sort of escalation would involve disrupting the supply chains on which the entire world economy depends. And in fact, I think in these blockade scenarios where China could choose what exactly it blockades, it could, for example, only blockade ships that are bringing weaponry into Taiwan or only blockade ships that are bringing certain types of material to Taiwan. It could keep allowing um, for example, ships that are exporting electronics to leave Taiwan, uh, if it were uh, if it were imposing checks on on, on ships entering and exiting, uh, and I think we ought to assume that in a blockade scenario it would. And so I think uh, in that scenario, the U.S. president would have to decide: Do you escalate and disrupt supply chains as well as risk war, or do you do nothing? And I worry that Taiwan's centrality in electronic supply chains means that. Escalating involves disastrous economic costs, which might actually deter a U.S. president uh, from taking that decision. So, Chris, quickly, some quickfire questions for you here. Do you think China will ever achieve world dominance in microchip technology? I think it's, it's obviously hard to predict the future, but right now China is behind technologically. It's a small player in the chip industry relative to the US or Taiwan or Korea, and it finds itself increasingly isolated from the rest of the world's advanced technology. And so all those factors would make me bet on Taiwan rather than bet on China. What would you say has been one of the biggest strides in the history of microchip technology? I think the, the, the most important 
factor that was is the most underestimated is the the splitting of the design process from the manufacturing process. Early in the chip industry, companies and individuals who, who designed chips also did the manufacturing. But in the 70s and 80s, there were software tools that were developed that let you design chips without knowing anything about manufacturing and let you manufacturing chips without knowing much about the design process. And that enabled extraordinary efficiencies and all sorts of new creativity in the design process. And that disaggregation has been a real uh, driver of progress in the chip industry. Thank you, Chris. It's been a thrilling insight, really, into the complex world of microchips and uh, geopolitics. And you've really shown how significant these tiny devices are on a global scale, and not just for the technology they enable, um, but in their own right, too. It's been quite an eye-opener as well to see the huge impact that just a few pinch points could make to the future of microelectronics and even to world order. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Chris said that the modern world is structured on a foundation of silicon chips. Advanced chips are the product of several machines, each incredible technologies in their own right. And there's a very few companies that are pivotal to the entire world's production of microchips. There are too many competing factors for Chris to be able to make a reasonable prediction as to how microelectronics will develop in the next 10 years, but probably Moore's law will continue to be relevant for a decade or so. And for the foreseeable future, microelectronics will have a big part to play in geopolitics. Thank you for joining us for this fascinating discussion. Next episode, we'll be exploring emerging and disruptive technologies. From machine learning to quantum computing, on Earth and in space, industries are being reshaped and traditional norms challenged. What strategies are policymakers using to stay ahead of the game in an ever-changing world? Please share the podcast, leave a review and tune in next time. In the meantime, I leave you with this thought from Steve Jobs. Some people can do one thing magnificently, like Michelangelo, and others make things like semiconductors or build 747 airplanes. That type of work requires legions of people. In order to do things well, that can't be done by one person, you must find extraordinary people.